Hello, I'm Toby Haydock, and this is a Skype call to a fascinating person who's brilliant in Doctor Who, but who also has many and varied achievements outside his great turn in a milestone story. I really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you do too. Well, I'm uh, I'm skyping to France. I hope the weather's nicer there than it is. I'm getting rained on in Shropshire. <laughs> the reason for this um, Anglo uh, Anglo French relations is because we have an expat who's got uh, far more illustrious credits than Doctor Who to his name, but uh, he also has a fine entry into the Doctor Who canon. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Okay. Well, my name is John Kane, and I played Tommy in Planet of the Spiders all those years ago. And in fact, I, I don't get any fan mail, but if I do get an occasional fan mail, it's usually about Tommy, which is extraordinary. <laughs> well, it's a great performance. Well, that's very nice of you to say so, I must say. Uh, I enjoyed doing it enormously because, of course, I, you know, I was 16 years old when Doctor Who started. I remember I was a drama student in Glasgow, and I remember seeing, I remember, first of all, hearing about it. I mean, there was an incredible buzz this whole idea that you walk into a police box and you find that the dimensions have altered and you're in a huge spaceship, that really grabbed people. And they were talking about it before I'd seen it. Uh, because, as I say, I was a drama student. I didn't have a television set. The first time I saw Doctor Who was on a Saturday afternoon walking down. I can't, it wasn't Soggy Hall Street in Glasgow, but it was um, near, the, uh, near the Botanical Gardens. And there was a, uh, you know, it's like all those kind of movies of, of impoverished people watching television through a shop window. They had the, the televisions on William Hartnell as Doctor Who and this um, probably was the second episode. Um, and uh, well, it just went from strength to strength from there. And as a, uh, I used to watch it quite regularly. And when the children, uh, children came along, of course, they watched it like every, most other kids from behind the sofa. Um, so I used to watch it with our children when they were smaller because they wouldn't watch it on their own. There was something wonderful about the old Doctor Who. You know, you, you look at the new Doctor Who, it is just so slick, so beautiful, so CGI and all that. But the wonderful thing about Doctor Who is, was it was it was terribly British. Because, uh, you know, 1960, where was it? It was just, just about the time of... It was 62, wasn't it? 63. 63. 63, was it? 63. Um, we hadn't long come out of kind of the, the, the 50s, uh, where everything was make-do. And there was a lot of that kind of almost improvisational... We'll put a couple of cardboard boxes together and that'll be the planet uh, Trius or whatever, you know. And there was a charm about it. This, the, the new Doctor is, is absolutely wonderful, of course, but, but, uh, and, and the Doctor himself is charming, but there was a, a kind of make-do aspect about it. Well, again, it was black and white, of course, um, but it was, it was British television trying to do something which hadn't been done in a long time. Um, and, of course... The next big thing, because the first, I think I'm right in saying the first series did not bring on the Daleks, did it? It was the second series that, yeah. second, about episode four or something. Yeah, it was the first four episodes were the introduction and cavemen, and then That's, they encountered the Daleks, yeah. Again, the Daleks, that revived, there had been any kind of uh, lack of, the kind of interest had dropped uh, in those first four episodes. When the Daleks... <laughs> Then it really went, to, you know, sky high. And the, uh, again, how wonderful that you can be frightened by a, a monster from outer space with a with a, a, a 
toilet plunger for a weapon. It's uh, it's fantastic. Um, and uh, well, one just went on. And of course, to, to be eventually to be on Doctor Who was was tremendous because there was sort of uh, my attitude towards television. There were a number of programs as an actor that you wanted to be on. Z Cars was one of them. Softly, softly, uh, Doctor Who. I managed to get on all, all three at one time or another. I mean, these had been running for years and years. They were sort of like, not like wallpaper, because that diminishes them, but they, they were part of one's life. I mean, Z cards had been going since the time I was living as a small boy in, 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 a, in a council house, I think. Um, and what, again, when I'd grown up with these people, to actually be on on television with them, I, what, I, I can't remember how old I was when I did Planet of the Spiders, but I must have been in my 20s, I think. Um, so uh, the, the thrill of, of actually being part of something that one had grown up with was, was still very strong. And you say, you know, you were a small boy from a councillor, so before you got to Doctor Who, you had not only been in Peter Brook's uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, um, yeah. which absolutely revolutionised the way that we do Shakespeare on the stage, and it was for the Royal Shakespeare Company, and you were playing Puck, which is, as yeah. parts go, uh, a pretty tremendous one. So how yeah. did a boy from a, a Glasgow councillor state get to be headlining a major gig at the RSC? Well, uh, again, again, that was a sort of... Um, culmination of something because the very first Shakespeare that I saw on stage was when I was a drama student and it was at the Glasgow Sits and it was Midsummer Night's Dream and the, the puck and I can't remember who it was to my shame but it was a wonderful performance and I thought oh god if I could ever play that but that was that was 62. How I came to be uh, in the Royal Shakespeare Company well um, I wanted to be a film star that's what I really wanted to be from about the age of five. When, because I would go to the pictures. My mother, my father was away in the Navy, and so my mother would take me along to the pictures from about four onwards as a kind of shield, you know. If she, if a bloke came and sat beside her, um, she could indicate that the brat sitting next to her, and he would realize that she was married. And so, so as I say, I think she, I was there as a sort of safety valve. And uh, um, so I, I saw all kinds of movies. And, and absolutely fell in love with them, and, I, and cowboys, and I wanted to be, whatever film I saw, I wanted to be that profession. I mean, that continued up until, I remember I saw a doctor at sea, wanted to be a medical officer on board a boat, this is about 12, 13, I saw Anatomy of a Murder, and I wanted to be a lawyer, and smoke cigars and play jazz on a piano. Um, uh, and uh, so when my mother explained to me that these people I was seeing on the screen were not cowboys or firemen or lawyers or sailors but they were in fact actors and the next time you go to see them on they're playing something else I thought this is the greatest job in the world to be a fireman one day and a, and a cowboy the next and I remember they were they, they just or about they were just about to film a film called the kidnappers about two small boys I think it was said in Nova Scotia who find a baby and take it thinking that they 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 adopted, and of course they're thought of as, as kidnappers and this great hue and cry, and they're they, they're unaware of it. And they the little Scottish boys. And I remember hearing the radio because of course we had no television, uh, just the radio, and so I was devoted to that and uh, radio and cinema. And I heard an interview uh, given by the casting lady who had been up to Edinburgh, Aberdeen rather, and she had a number of castings uh, looking at boys, and she just couldn't find the right person and as she was getting the bus she said to the station there you go that's the kind of world we lived in casting ladies catching the bus <laughs> um, uh, she saw a boy and his mother and she jumped off the bus and went up to them and talked to them and that was the child that was uh, was hired for the job when as soon as I heard that I went down to our bus stop 
and that evening, and every time a bus came, I would do something funny like falling off the wall or dancing, hoping that the casting lady was still around and would give me my job, <laughs> give me a job. So, as I say, I wanted to be um, uh, an actor from... And so I started uh, doing impersonations. At the age of nine, I went to the ABC Miners, which was a club run by the ABC Film Circuit, uh, every Saturday uh, uh, morning, where they showed cartoons and had competitions and, and they'd show a cowboy or a comedy and they had a serial, of course. And... Um, so I started doing impersonation. They had a talent show, and I uh, got to the second heat. And I did impersonations of people like Humphrey Bogart and Peter Lorre and Terry Thomas. And, and so I'm nine years old. Um, and uh, I had to get jokes to, to tell my character. So I, I started raiding jokes. I put together this act. And I didn't win the competition, but I was invited to, to um, join a touring entertainment troupe, amateur touring that would go around and disturb the peace of old people in, in homes, you know, in retirement homes. So there was I doing my Humphrey Bogart, and um, Al Jolson was another one I, I used to do. And then I then I realized it was very hard to uh, to make the, uh, these, these jokes, that if I joined a, a local amateur company, I didn't have to write the material. I could actually simply act. So I, I joined... Uh, two operatic societies, one in Arbroath, I'm, I'm living now in Canoosley on the east coast of Scotland, I joined one in Arbroath, two in Arbroath, operatic, Arbroath Operatic Society, the Canoosley Operatic Society, I joined three dramatic societies, and every night of the week I would be rehearsing a different show, a different play, and eventually I auditioned for, at the age of 16, the um, Academy of Speech and Drama, Music, Speech and Drama at, at, uh, in Glasgow, and was accepted. And in my third year, well, I mean, I, put a, I wrote a, a, a Christmas play um, for us to perform in my second year, and that was seen by someone in the theatre, Duncan McRae, I think, and it was bought by the Royal Lyceum, so um, it was going to be on uh, Christmas, uh, the Christmas show in Edinburgh at the Royal Lyceum. And um, after two and a half years uh, at the Royal at, at the uh, Academy, uh, the Royal Shakespeare Company was setting up um, an actor's studio um, for uh, uh, ten young actors chosen from either repertories or from drama uh, schools uh, to work with John Barton and Michel Saint-Denis, a very famous um, French um, theatre director and mime, and uh, uh, not my mask artist, um, and I was chosen. So I didn't finish uh, at, uh, the, um, uh, at the college. I, I joined the Royal Shakespeare Company at the age of 19 um, in February of, of 2000, uh, sorry, 2000, 1965, and I stayed with them for the next seven years. And that first year I was uh, performing in with the company uh, in down in London because we moved down to the Oldwich every winter and so I was performing that while up in Edinburgh I had my first play performed or by that time I was 20 as we said um, and I stayed I was offered a, at the end of that first year I was offered a, um, a three-year contract with the company and became an associate member of the Royal Shakespeare Company now while I'm busy um, acting uh, with the R with the RSC I'm also writing um, uh, and when I was on Broadway with the um, uh, with uh, Midsummer Night's Dream, I uh, I was walking along a street and I suddenly saw a woman that I was convinced was Greta Garbo, 
and she entered an apartment building. I rushed forward, and then I stopped at the entrance to the, the building, and I thought, what happens if I, what am I going to say to her? You know, what, what a, this is a goddess, and you know, what am I going to say to her? And uh, so I ducked out of that, but it, but it preyed on my mind, and then when we got back from Broadway, there was a hiatus of about two months before we actually opened again on the, at the Aldwych Theatre, which was the home of the Royal Shakespeare Company. And I wrote a play which purported to be what would happen if, in fact, I had gone through that door and spoke to Greta Garbo. And I sold the play to London Weekend Television, uh, and uh, Shelley Winters came over and played uh, the part. It was a two-hander, her and David Wood. Um, at the same time, I had a play running at the Plastic Birthday, which got very good reviews and played at the King's Head. So I was always writing and acting. And at the end of the seven years uh, with um, with the Royal Shakespeare Company, they wanted me to go round the world with the production. But by then, I'd met my wife to be, and I'd also uh, cut swam into the can of, of uh, Terry Scott, who uh, whose main writer Dave Freeman had left, had, had been given the job of writing the latest carry-ons, and so Terry was looking for a writer. And I had written a, a pilot uh, for Roy Kinnear, um, who was in the company at the time, and I'd always, I adored the man. He was very, I always thought he was so funny, very, very funny and very sweet-natured man. And so I wrote this pilot for him, uh, but... Uh, they, I think Roy was involved in film, so he wasn't available, and they sent it around to various people. In fact, it landed on Ronnie Barker's uh, desk at one point. That was before I was going off to America with, on Broadway with Summerhouse Dream. And we, ha we had a meeting, and I think instead of doing my show, which was called at that time Leggett's Choice, he decided to do uh, Yes, Sir, or something about a, a country home where he plays a... Uh, oh, yes. A, 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 an, an episode of it's just come back from the arch uh, from missing from the archives. It's a sort of precursor to Faulty Towers. He's a lord who's fallen on hard times, and so opens his house to the public. So he de he decided to do that instead. So when I came back, I uh, I was put in touch with Terry, and he liked the show, and he asked me if I could write sketches. Well, I'd never I'd only written one sketch in my life before, but as I say, Dave Freeman, his sketch writer, was working on the Carry On series. So I found myself as I when I left the ROC in in March of. 72, with two contracts with the BBC, one to write a series uh, of um, uh, sitcom for BBC One, and uh, to write uh, a six 45-minute sketch show for, for Terry. Um, well, um, I got, never having, as I say, written sketches before, and if you look at the, the two Ronnies, the amount of writers that go past wrote the scripts or added this, that and the other. There was me on my Todd thinking, oh, well, I'll roll up my sleeve. So I got through the first two okay. And then I, I wrote one which was a total disaster. I wrote another and I wrote, so I got to the fourth, I got the fourth. And I mean, if you're writing 45 minutes of comedy every two weeks, that's, that is hard going. And you begin to, you just don't know what's funny anymore. So I, I confessed that I couldn't, I, I just couldn't continue with it. So Dave came back, Dave Freeman came back, and uh, we wrote the last two shows. This was a show called Scott On, Scott On, The Sex War, Scott On, Language, so on and so forth. And then we did The, um, uh, the Son of the Bride, as, as Leggett's Choice was now called. And unfortunately, um, it didn't do too well. And so I was out of work, uh, and, not a, and so I went back to acting. And because uh, I was determined to be a writer, in fact, I bought a house on the Isle of Wight 
Um, it was our first house that we bought. I bought it with the money, for the, the commissioning money for the two series from BBC. You know, you could do that. The house I bought was had a huge amount of land, including a cliff, and it cost me all of twelve thousand one hundred and fifty pounds. So I went back into to acting and got my agent saying, I, you know, I, I, of course, I was always looking for for writing. I was I never stopped writing, and I wrote I wrote for Black Beauty. I wrote for Dick Turpin, uh, and then I got to work as an actor again. I did, as I say, softly, softly, Z cars. I did plays. I did uh, films, the odd film. And uh, that brings me up to um, Planet of the Spiders. And uh, so uh, I, I did, would you have had to have auditioned for, for Barry Letts or would he have known you from the RSC work? You know, I can't, I, I honestly can't remember. I think I probably did audition. What a nice man he was, and he really was. Um, he was a stickler for discipline. He was he was very old, much old school. I'd seen Barry as an actor, again tremendously professional, uh, and with a great deal of heart. It was a one. I mean, it's, a, it's an actor's dream, an actor's dream to start off as this slow-witted boy, and gradually begin to um, learn his the mind improving, becoming more intelligent, becoming more incisive. Uh, you know, just to kind of that that development. Is, is, is terrific to have that kind of role. I'm watching The Planet of the Spiders. I, <laughs> I had to notice that at times my accent slipped the more intelligent I got. So obviously, not only I was becoming more intelligent, I was also becoming more middle class. <laughs> yes, he, he, he leaves the West Country behind as he becomes he more intelligent. He does a bit, I'm afraid, yes, he does a bit. But it's a wonderful... I love the scene where he um, starts reading the William Blake and he yeah. re- and he realizes that he's understanding it is yeah. is is magnificent it was it was in that respect my, i mean i have to say my part probably was one of the best written parts as well i think the, the whole idea I, I i think it may have been influenced by charlie do you remember the film charlie it's a, an experiment they they give a serum to this this um, slow-witted um, man and he becomes very intelligent falls in love with his doctor but at the end of the film, it's it's like the El Dopo thing. He res- he goes back into his in his original state, which is and it's a film called Charlie. So I don't know whether that was in the back of uh, the writer's mind. Was it Barry who wrote the script? I can't remember. Well, yeah, it's it's credited to Robert Sloman, but it's um, Barry's hand is in it because yeah, there's, there's a lot of Barry in it. Yes, it... and uh, the whole business of the the um, uh, the, the, uh, the Buddhism and and all that the chanting and so on and so on. That's because again, Barry was. I was always fascinated by, by, by the religious side of, of, of individuals. And it was uh, it was John Pertwee's last um, yes. last story. So was yeah. was the atmosphere a little was, sad? He was. It was. It was tremendously sad. Liz uh, had worked with John for so long, and and John was a charming man, an absolutely charming man. Um, uh, he invited me to dinner with my. My then wife, my, well, still my wife. I mean, we had married by this time, um, and uh, he was again uh, uh, for me because, uh, uh, like yourself, I'm sure Toby, um, you have tremendous love uh, for the past of show business, films, and everything else. And John, I had heard, I think in Much Binding in the Marsh, he played the postman. Oh, uh, my dear, mm. uh, which is a voice he used for Wurzel Gummidge. So I'd known John Pertwee, uh, and I'd seen him. On stage uh, in '63, something in uh, funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, uh, a, a 
wonderful musical, he's just a great stage performer. And in fact, he wanted me to be in a play with him that was coming into the West End. And I went back and told my agent, and they started to negotiate, and they were offering me less money than I was receiving at the RSC. So anyway, I would say, no, 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 I can't, I can't. This was, uh, I'd been away from the RSC for about two, two years by now. Uh, and I said, no, I can't do it for less than the subsidized theater price. And so I, I, I lost the part. And, I, and as a result, I was out of work for six months well. <laughs> and had to rent out our house on the Isle of Wight for the summer trade and go and live with my brother-in-law in Oxford. And my Alison was, uh, was expecting our firstborn, Simon. I'd said to Alison, um, we're not going to have a child until I've got a thousand pounds in the bank. Well, by the time we had a child, I was two thousand overdrawn in the bank. So that plan didn't work out, like most of my uh, plans of, uh, of uh, my life plan, etc. I don't know how you can have it, because you plan to be a movie star. Um, it would be enough, I think, to say, oh, that bloke who's really good in Planet of the Spiders was in um, Midsummer Night's Dream for uh, Peter Brook. But you've also have this strange tangential career that we've talked about. But you are you are the man behind Terry and June. Yeah, that's right. Um, uh, I had I, after after the failure of, of uh, Son of the Bride. Um, Terry was. I mean, uh, we were both kind of shell shocked. He then asked. He was then as a kind of because they weren't going to do another series as a compensation. They gave him a one off. Uh, um, to Scott on, 45 minute one. Now, because he, I had written material which he loved, and with the audience, the studio audience is adored, but in fact, we just didn't get an audience for it at all. He was began to doubt me. And so, instead of writing what I thought was funny, which you've got to do if you're a comic writer, I started to write what I thought he would think was funny. But since Terry had been shaken, because his, his judgment had been shaken by the response, to Son of the Bride, he didn't quite know what was funny anymore. And I nearly had a nervous breakdown. Try, I would write these scripts out of the Isle of Wight and send them into Peter Whitmore, a, a wonderful uh, producer-director. Started off as a, a sound man at BBC Radio doing with brown paper doing the sound of pterodactyl's wings in, in the radio production of, of uh, The Lost World, Arthur Conan Doyle's Lost World. And he'd come, become a floor manager, He'd gone. I mean, he'd gone through every aspect of of television and radio. So, I mean, he had years and years of experience, and he was a very, very. I mean, the way we worked with the Terry and Junes. I'm jumping ahead, I know, but I just want to say, the way we worked, there weren't committees. There were no committees. It was it was wonderful in those days. It was a cottage industry. I would phone Peter up when I was about to start a new script and say, "Have you done? I've just bought a ping pong table and had a terrible trouble." trouble putting it together. Has, has, has Terry done, because the, the, the series of Terry and June came from Happy Ever After, which had been running for four or five years beforehand. Did he ever do anything about a ping pong table? And Peter said, no. I said, well, I, that's what he does. He buys a ping pong table. That was my outline. <laughs> so I wrote, I wrote the show and then it went to Peter and Peter said, I think this needs a little bit tweaking here, a little bit tweaking there. I would tweak it. We would then uh, after I got about three scripts, I think it was a six in a series, I would, we would then go to Terry, and the three of us would sit, Peter, myself, and, and Terry, and we would read the scripts. And what I want, hoped for was Terry, when he finished the last page, says, yep, that's fine, put it aside. And we didn't touch that again until the first day's rehearsal. Um, 
And then sometimes there were things that needed to be tweaked and so on and so forth, and I would go away and write it. But it was essentially just the three of us, Terry, the director, producer, Peter Whitmore, and myself. And that made, gave me, myself, a tremendous, a tremendous freedom. When I worked for uh, Me and My Girl at London Weekend, I was given a script editor. And that, that I, again, a terrific guy, Bernard McKenna, a wonderful writer in his own right. But I, I didn't, I wasn't used to having somebody sitting but between me and and the director and, and or between me and the star uh, and he did his job very very well indeed but I, I always kind of resented it I just because of the, I, I, I was happier because I had freedom with with, with the Terry and June well and uh, it's interesting Terry Scott gets a, an odd press nowadays some reports say he was quite he could be quite difficult he was um he was a man who had his, his demons he could be absolutely ruthless in um, in his relationship, if if you didn't deliver as an actor by the second third day of rehearsals, then he would want you sacked because he couldn't trust you. He 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 had no um, uh, he had no sentiment in that respect. I was very cross with him. It, one of the last things that Doris Hare did, Doris Hare, yeah, absolutely, and a great great um, uh, cabaret artist and and uh, review artist in, in the, from the thirties and forties. Her, her memory was going, and and she she was in a, I think only in a small scene in one. It, it was a it was a show. I don't think it was a show that I had written because by that time I was writing for as I say the I only did half. And they were doing thirteen shows. I would do six of the Terry and Junes, and I don't think it was my show. Otherwise, uh, I I would have tried not to let. Him. He he had her had her sacked because of her memory. Now. I just thought that was a dreadful thing to do, that this, this old lady who owes, you owe respect, you should owe respect to this woman who goes back so far. Okay, so maybe you're going to have an awkward few minutes in the studio. You can paste it together, you know. But Terry, no, if it wasn't there, you go. And, uh, and also he could take a dislike to people. He was... Uh, I was very fond of Terry. I liked him enormously. And I remember after the, the failure of... Uh, Son of the Bride, the series, that the first series I wrote for Terry. I bumped into someone, maybe in the BBC club, maybe when I was doing uh, Planet of the Spiders, I can't remember the, the time scale. And this was a, someone who said, uh, I was talking to Terry Scott, he was singing your praises. Now, it would have been so easy for Terry to blame me for the failure of, of, this, of, this, of the series, but he, he didn't. He was tremendously loyal in that respect. He was always loyal to me. Um, uh, and and I, I know that he could be mean. I know that he could be ruthless. And he, I don't, he, he was not very good with women. I mean, he was great with June, because June wouldn't stand any nonsense from him. I mean, he adored June, absolutely adored June. Um, I always used to say that, that they were like, like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers, not as dancers, but they said that uh, Fred Astaire gave uh, Ginger Rogers class and she gave him sex, you know, in that respect. Huh. Well, Terry gave, uh, you know, he gave June uh, comic brio, but June gave the whole set warmth, and that was the tremendous combination. Um, so what, it ha what happened was that uh, Eric Merriman and John Chapman, I think, and you'll have to check up on this, but they had been writing Happy Ever After. John, who was a very fine, fast writer, decided to go back in to, to write for the stage for Ray Cooney. 
uh, either with Rainey or for, for Ray Cooney. And uh, so Eric got another writer in, and they were writing uh, Happy Ever After, which was basically Terry and June, but with um, an aunt who had a minor bird, an elderly aunt who had a minor bird. Um, and they, Terry was not happy with the scripts or something, and they brought me in to write a couple of scripts. And I hadn't written for Terry um, for, oh gosh, it must have been nearly six years. And I sat down to write this script called A Bridge Too Far for uh, Happy Ever After. And it's still one of the best scripts. It, it's on the first series of Terry and June. They added, I don't know whether they've cut one of the Duff shows from Terry and June, but they added, and, and I'm still tremendously proud of it. It's, it's Terry trying to learn bridge in the course of an evening. Um, uh, and that was the first one, and it, it, it was good. And so when they, we got to the end of the series, uh, John Howard Davis offered me the, the series to write. Terry and Jen. But Eric, uh, quite rightly, was saying, but this is my series, and you can't have the aunt character, because I created the aunt character. And so he did that, dear lady, out of work. So, But when the, the Scott Ons that I had written for Terry... What I had used is, it, it, prior to me coming onto the Scott Arms, it was Terry giving a lecture, and they would cut away to a, um, uh, a, a sketch. Well, I can't write jokes. I can, I've never been able to write jokes. So I said, why don't we have a, a, a long sketch between Terry and June as man and wife, and in the course of a conversation or an argument, we get a sketch as, a, as an example. So in fact, the Scott Arms that I'd written were really... There were 20-minute um, domestic sketches with Terry and June, calling each other Terry and June as, 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 as characters. And that's, I think, what gave them the idea to do Happy Ever After with Terry and June as, as a, a, a married couple. So I, I took them back, as it were, but, and we couldn't call them, and I, I never remember this, they were either called the Medfords or the Bedfords. So if they were called the Bedfords, we called them the Medfords, and if they were the Medfords, we called them the Bedfords. And we moved them from... Where were the healing? To Pearly in the first episode. and But it was just Terry and June with a lot of the characters that had been in Happy Ever After. Um, and so I wrote that for eight years on and off um, with others, other episodes, with other series. Yeah. You mentioned that episode you were very proud of, but I know you're also um, proud of The Feathered Serpent, which you did in 76 to 78, and which uh, also has a Doctor Who connection because uh, Patrick Trout was in it. Oh, Patrick. See that? I mean, it's just—it's just great art. In fact, I, I saw it, looked at it recently when the, the, the DVD came out. And I'm, 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 I'm proud of that too. And that all came about. It's funny, as I say. Television in those days was a cottage industry, and a series could come out of a, a, a choice remark. I went in to meet Anna, and I have to—I I, apologise to the lady, uh, but I can't remember her second name. But she was the head of children's entertainment in um, at Thames. And I'd done a, I think I'd done a, a one-off for a, for a sort of uh, 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 a series like Comedy Playhouse, where they would have one-off for, for various writers, hoping that one of them would, would catch and they could do a series of it. I'd done one of those. Anyway, they'd liked it, but they didn't go with the series with it. And I had this meeting with her, and I was told that she loved horses. She'd just done Bodicea. That's right, she'd just done Bodicea, I think, the Warrior Princess or something. And she said, absolutely marvellous. And I said, she said, but you see, when you do costume drama, 
you've got to have horses, and when you've got horses, you, uh, it's, it's a cost you a fortune. I said, why, why don't you set a series in South America before the coming of the conquistadors? Because they had no horses. And you could see a light bulb come on in her head and say, oh, really? Wow, could you, could you write something like that? Well, I had always loved the serials, the old serials of Chambers and, and well, really like Indiana Jones. I'd always loved that. And so I, I put together this story. And it looked fantastic. I mean, it really, considering that it was shot entirely in the studios on a, on a budget, you know, not a very big budget, but it looked fantastic. And listen to me, I, I'm awfully sorry, but you'll have to ask me your last question because it's I'm doing the cooking and I'm doing stir-fried chicken tonight, so... No problem. No, I, well, yeah, it's fan been... It's been fantastic to talk to you. Um, I, I would just ask you to um, nominate your charity and give your message to the Doctor Who fans out there. Oh, wow. Gosh. Gosh. Um, oh, Lord. I didn't know you were going to do this. My, <laughs> my charity. The Actors Benevolent Fund. Yeah. And to the Doctor Who fans, um, thank you for your loyalty. And it is you, the fans, who have kept this series going because without you, without your support... I think it probably would never have had the second chance that it has at this moment. Well, thanks for your time and for a great conversation. I really appreciate it, John. It's a pleasure, Jeremy. Thanks the very much. Good luck with the rest of it. Thank you very much. You're number 75. Ah. <laughs> My God. Well done, well done. Bye-bye, Jeremy. <laughs> thanks, John. Take care. Well, my enormous gratitude to John, and uh, I hope he didn't go too hungry. Uh, having given me so much of his time. His charity is www.actorsbenevolentfund, all one word, .co.uk. Actorsbenevolentfund.co.uk. Next up, uh, we have a musician who is warming to his theme, Uh, but uh, it's not just about Doctor Who. Sometimes we talk about pigeons. I did a bit of part-time work writing music for... um for Rent-A-Kill, who were uh, the pest control company, and they had a, a video unit. And um, I wrote a bit of music. This sounds so primitive now. Well, I wrote a bit of music to a film about uh, um, exterminating pigeons. <laughs> and um, and the music was written in the studio live. This is like this could have, could have been in the fifties or something. The way I'm describing this, they had no facilities. And none, I went into the studio. They ran the, the film of the exterminating pigeons and um, but they needed this music uh, and I went in with my synthesizer and like an old 1920s um, sort of silent movie I just watched the film and, and made played on the keyboard as I watched and they recorded it onto a piece of tape okay well whether you've guessed who that is or not is uh, the next person in the next edition of Toby Haydock's Who's Round and I hope you've enjoyed this one goodbye This is the first session of the Parliamentary Inquiry into the Intrusion Countermeasures Group. Sir Tobias Kinsella will be held to account. Coming soon from Big Finish Productions, Countermeasures, Series 3. No such thing as luck, Gilmore. We're all the fathers of our own fortune. Sometimes quite literally. The whole place is on fire. They must be dropping in centuries. But who? The Luftwaffe. This is the raid that destroyed the houses that were here. 
No! No, can't you hear them? Ha! I felt the heat of that one, sir. We have to fight back. Take the battle to the enemy. I will not make deals. I will not make promises. Lying's like breathing to that man. He does it without thinking. You're sending us into East Berlin. You're sending Rachel in. I suppose I always knew there was going to be a risk. If I'd wanted a quiet life, I could have stayed at Cambridge. What are you going to do to me? He's wanted control of countermeasures from day one.